Hey folks, this is Scott. Just a few words before we start. You know, every week I get the most amazing emails from you, the fans, saying things like, your podcasts help encourage me and give me hope. Or as one person said, I'm encouraged and inspired by the fact that you're pushing the permaculture discourse well beyond the realm of gardening. See, I know the Permaculture Podcast is more than just the interviews and creative efforts behind the scenes. This show is where listeners have found that the more people they hear on the podcast, the more human and connected we become. The more meaning we make of our lives, the more meaningfully we live. So, the Permaculture Podcast is a labor of love. We have three people currently as part of the podcast team, mostly unpaid or barely paid, making the podcast happen, creating the newsletter, getting out to live events, replying to email, answering phone calls, and much more. But we, the Permaculture Podcast team, just don't have enough income for this venture to cover a living wage payroll, equipment upgrades, website maintenance, podcast bandwidth, expenses for going on the road to capture live interviews, and so on. That's why right now, we're doing a Keep the Permaculture Podcast running campaign. With that, we're asking you to keep in mind that when you support the show, that this isn't a multinational corporation. The conversations you hear here are not the kind of broadcasts you'll find anywhere else. It's not the same formulaic talking points or pre-prepared answers. We dig in deep and find the honesty and candor to create the world we want to live in. This show is part of the permaculture community and the broader movement to make a difference for Earth and ourselves. Together we sit down and hear the stories of others, not just the latest sound bites. What you hear is what helped to make us who we are as human beings. Stories that go from lips to ear. One person to another. Real people sharing their truths, their experiences from their own lives. The more we listen and share, the more connected we are to each other and to the world. As I've heard from many of you, it is essential that we keep the Permaculture Podcast running. Please help us do that. Visit thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support and make a one-time donation or become a recurring member. Now, here's the show. If you look at the list of podcast episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, however you happen to listen to this show other than the website, you'll see that there's what looks like about 70 shows available at any given time. And that's true of the RSS feed, but there are hundreds more in the archives that I think you'll enjoy. So I'm going to be remastering and re-releasing some of these classics over the next few months. After my mentor and colleague Benjamin Weiss mentioned my interview with David Holmgren in the conversation about permaculture and climate change, that time that I spent with David seemed like a fitting place to start. Even more so because I'm talking with one of my colleagues who works closely with David, on a follow-up interview with Mr. Holmgren later this year. If you're new to the show or a long-time listener, this episode originally aired in 2013, when I wanted to talk with David to hear, in his own words, about the origins of permaculture, the influences of people like Howard T. Odom, and what we can do to expand permaculture, initially with this idea of making it more mainstream. Along the way, he takes us through his broad history and what he identifies as three waves of environmentalism. The first, a limit of resources arising in the 1970s, a limit of what we can put into the environment, pollution and waste and things like that, during the late 80s and 1990s, and then the convergence of these ideas into the third wave of environmentalism that arose over the last decade, decade and a half, with peak oil and climate change. We're going to go ahead and jump in with David sharing how he got started and creating this idea of permaculture with his mentor at the time, Bill Mollison, as a student in Tasmania. I'll join you again afterwards. Yeah, well, I suppose it's a, a long story for me because it, it started when I was a student in environmental design in Tasmania in the early 1970s. And I was very interested in the overlap between landscape architecture as a profession, agriculture as a subject area, and using ecological thinking in that fusion. And I really couldn't find anything that really dealt with that overlap. You could find the overlap between two of those, but not between 
all three. And it was at that time that I met Bill Mollison by chance. And he was actually lecturing in another institution for me and not in any of those subjects. He was um, a senior tutor, actually, in the psychology faculty of uh, the Tasmanian University. And I was a, a student in environmental design, which probably in retrospect, I would say, was probably the most radical experiment in tertiary education in Australia's history, in that there was no fixed curriculum, there was no fixed timetable, a third of the staff budget was for visiting lecturers and outside professionals, there was self-assessment up to submission of a thesis, and undergraduate and postgraduate students worked collaboratively on interdisciplinary projects, and the department functioned as a consultancy service to um, in the uh, public domain. So that's the context in which I met Bill Mollison and developed, I suppose, a, a student-mentor relationship, even though he was, we never had any sort of formal relationship in that. And it was in those years, 1974-75, when I was sharing house with him and we were developing an extensive garden and constantly articulating these ideas and I was working basically full-time in my course purely on the manuscript that became Permaculture One. So for me, that initial starting point was a a full-time focus. I suppose in those early years, I was also very passionate about the practical side of things more than the academic side of things. And at the completion of my thesis, instead of going on to do postgraduate work, I just launched myself into all of the practical aspects of permaculture at the same time that Bill Mollison was tiring of his position as a senior tutor within the confines of a psychology faculty, and he launched himself into really the public domain in promoting Permaculture One, which was published in 1978. And there was a huge amount of interest at that time And some of that, of course, is attributable to Bill Mollison's uh, charismatic nature, but most of it really needs to be attributed to the times that 1978 was one of those in that pivotal, what I call the first wave of modern environmental thinking between the two oil crises of 1973 and 79. There was this huge interest in what today we would call sustainability. And that interest was right from the counterculture sort of fringe, if you like, right through to mainstream public policy issues. And that led to this enormous interest in permaculture, both in Australia and then very quickly uh, overseas as well. And for someone who was, well, in 1978, when that book was published, I was 23 years old. That was, I suppose, a bit of a shock in a way. (laughs) And I didn't know quite how to deal with that. Whereas Bill Mollison was, as I said, middle-aged, looking for a larger stage, a broader audience and a platform on which to engage with the wider world about the environmental crisis and the solutions to it. Where has your work gone through those years as Bill stepped out and you were doing the work in Australia and developing many of your books and writings and the teaching that you've been doing and your method of handling this material? Well, I suppose just to provide more context rather than just the personal story, Between those early years and I would see a a second great wave of both interest in permaculture and around environmentalism generally, and that was in 
the late 80s, the second wave. And of course, that coincided with the publication of Bill Mollison's Designer's Manual, which is really an encyclopedia of permaculture design. And I see that wave in the broader sense of not just permaculture, but in the wider environmental sense was driven by the awareness about the limits of the environment via climate change, whereas the first wave was driven by the idea of the limits of resources and the thinking behind that came out of the Limits to Growth report of the Club of Rome of 1972 and then the oil crises sort of illustrating that issue. So limits of resources coming into society and then the second wave limits of what we can put into the environment, a climate change, and then the third wave that you were talking about was really those two crises starting to come together in the form of peak oil and, and climate change. So I think those larger psychosocial and geopolitical contexts to an amazing degree shape what happens in people's personal lives. And for me, the 80s was a sort of going sort of away from mainstream society, recognising that mainstream society was going off in all the wrong directions. And a lot of permaculture activism was definitely strongly in the counterculture. And for me, it was around just practically implementing and developing working examples of permaculture. First on my mother's property um, in southern New South Wales in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, which was documented in a small publication called Permaculture in the Bush. And then in the mid-80s with the development of this property, Meliodora, which was documented in the mid-90s in a a quite extensive book and then more recently e-book about our property. So I was emphasising to permaculture activists that the important thing was to have good working uh, demonstration sites of permaculture rather than just talking loudly to people about urgent problems or alternatively saying how fantastic this permaculture concept is because the interest in permaculture was there and it was easy to sort of surprisingly easy when the social conditions are right for that to grow. But unless there was the solid backup of working examples and then people with skills to enable and help people to go further with it, then a lot of that interest would just uh, die when it sort of went out to try and do something. And I think at least within the uh, permaculture movement in Australia and to an extent for those who were interested, that emphasis I gave to the we need to have the practical examples, both from a, a sort of activist effectiveness point of view, but also from a moral point of view that you need to practice what you preach. Uh, you need to experiment on yourself before you tell other people to experiment did have an effect in reinforcing other people's thoughts along the same lines. So I sort of, in a way, became known as, you know, the quiet practitioner who was sort of implementing things in, in a modest way. But it's interesting that in the late 80s when there became, again, a greater opening an interest in these ideas, I ended up doing work that was also a bit more in the mainstream, a little bit more in the public domain. But it was around the land care movement in Australia, working with farmers on farm revegetation systems, but taking a permaculture approach to what was a larger, broader environmental movement that was supported by government and supported in rural communities in Australia. So a lot of that work didn't actually have a permaculture label on it initially. And the most notable of that is 
a design manual I did in the late 80s called Trees on the Treeless Plains, which is available as a, a download, uh, downloadable file still. And it was really focusing on applying permaculture principles to revegetation on farm landscapes in the region where I live. So it was very specific, though a lot of people have taken that and used the uh, design principles in it to uh, working with other landscapes. In the 1990s, really, my work was also very much focused uh, in this region, but it was on two major directions. The first was around the management of the public land on the fringes of the small village, Hepburn Springs, where I live, along uh, Spring Creek in an area we call the Spring Creek Community Forest. And this was really building on work I'd done in the 80s in New Zealand with a permaculture colleague, Hakai Tane, looking at what we called uh, the process of ecosynthesis of where nature was actually creating new ecosystems on damaged land out of a sort of hybrid of indigenous species and introduced species that have become naturalised. And this has an older lineage going back in my work and also right through the origins of permaculture and back into the origins of organic agriculture in a, a positive view of weeds and what they tell us and what they're doing in the environment. So this theme about weeds or wild nature became quite controversial, both within the permaculture movement, but also it became one of the notorious aspects of permaculture in the wider environmental movement. I suppose my work in that did actually lead to permaculture being identified by some environmentalists as an environmentally damaging activity around the spreading of plants which uh, were naturalising. So, yeah, that was a, a major aspect. Your comment about weeds and using plants that have already naturalised to an area, when I've given public presentations on permaculture and discussed natives versus non-natives and what we choose to plant and what we don't, initially there was a lot of conversation with people about, well, how can you take that kind of a viewpoint because of the destruction that it causes? And I think that part of that was my own personal emerging view of native versus non-native species, as opposed to trying to have an invasive versus non-invasive conversation, because we could just as easily have something that would be native to the area considered invasive, depending on who's talking about it, but about how we use these different things in the environment, and that there's a difference between then within the zones of permaculture of where you might want to expand on those naturalized plants versus those places where you might not want to in order to preserve the biodiversity in an area. And having those conversations with people to try to kind of even out the understanding. Yes, so this issue of um, weeds or wild nature, as I call it more rather than natives versus exotics, because there's two related issues. There's the one of, of what one should be planting, but the other issue is how one should manage the wild. And I've been known for taking, uh, I suppose, what was seen by a lot of people as a more extremist position in that I was saying that the landscape, the outer zones of our managed, managed landscape, zone four, the managed wild, is in reality a mixture of species from all different heritages almost everywhere. And this is now being confirmed by a whole field of research that since 2000 has taken off and the, the terminology for it is novel ecosystems. And there's estimates that, you know, 30% of the planet is actually covered with novel ecosystems, 30% of the land area, which are effectively not intensively managed, you know, farm or other landscapes. They are actually wild places, but they are places where 
you couldn't really identify them as indigenous ecosystems with a few exotic species naturalised. They are actually new ecosystems evolving from new combinations of species that include, you know, some indigenous species and many other species from many, many different places. So what's happened since 2000 is gradually the scientific investigation of this issue has started to catch up finally with permaculture thinking and permaculture activism around these issues. And during the 80s and 90s, uh, the 90s especially, I certainly felt that the whole thing of being a voice in the wilderness, so to speak, and even within permaculture, people found it necessary to moderate their views around this increasingly well-established orthodoxy about biodiversity. Now, I never accepted that orthodoxy as having a scientific foundation. And the criticism of permaculture along these lines was actually there at the beginning. In 1978, there was um, a couple of young environmentalists of about my age who were on public radio in Melbourne, community radio, who were talking about permaculture as the greatest threat to the environment. (laughs) And it was interesting because it seemed to me a little bit hilarious in a way, a bit like Trotskyites and Maoists and Stalinists in the uh, socialist left in the 1930s all fighting each other. But it did indicate this quite substantial difference in environmental thinking. And back then, in the late 70s, you could say permaculture and these ideas of indigenous revegetation around where we should only use indigenous species in all revegetation and landscaping were both very small fringe ideas. And what's interesting is that although permaculture actually has grown enormously in its influence, in many primarily English-speaking countries, indigenous revegetation has become almost an orthodoxy. Here in in Australia, you know, the government programs and uh, of land management are fully focused around these ideas. Of course, this is still very superficial because, on the other hand, our agriculture and our forestry are all based on of course, exotic species. So there's a sort of a, a, almost a sort of schizoid sort of exist in the policy world. But that led in the 90s to quite a lot of focus for me on that subject. And that was very much grounded in our work in this area of public land where we were working along permaculture principles on a larger area of public land without public funding, without permission, and contrary to the current environmental orthodoxy. That work has continued to the present. The other thing that, going back to that story of what was I doing in the, uh, you know, prior to Principles and Pathways, was the development of the Friars Forest Eco Village in central Victoria, not that far from here in Maliadora, 35 kilometres to the north. And for me, that was really about bringing together my passions for sustainable forestry, which was a, another area of intense interest, and the whole community ownership and organisation of land, because of course permaculture from the beginning was quite closely associated with the whole idea and practice of creating intentional communities. So I suppose when Principles and Pathways was published in 2002, I did get the reaction that a lot of people were a bit surprised because they 
thought of me as a quiet practitioner and then principles and pathways appeared then a, a very big picture and even abstract theoretical framework for permaculture through design principles. And I suppose my answer to that is, in a way, I've always been a big-picture, abstract thinker, but what I've done is use the practical day-to-day aspects of garden and land management and dealing with the nitty-gritty of practical, local, social interaction and all all the issues that are involved in just being a part of a community that are sort of very down-to-earth, very, if you like, ordinary, as a grounding force for my big-picture thinking. That stuff that, you know, brings you back down-to-earth and stops your head drifting away into the clouds. But, yeah, I've always been uh, that big picture uh, sort of person. My understanding is is that the work of Howard T. Odom was one of the influences on you and permaculture. Is that correct? Yes. uh, Permaculture 1, the first reference in that book was Howard Odom's 1971 book, Power, Environment and Society. And I read that book in 1973. And for me, it was extremely influential at that time that I was working with Bill Mollison in developing the permaculture concept. And then when I went to New Zealand in 1979 and first worked with Hakaitane, that was a trigger for again, a renewed interest in Howard Odom's work and a book that was published around that time called Energy Basis for Man and Nature sort of renewed my interest and and focus. And when I started teaching on permaculture design courses in the early 90s, I found the need to introduce some of the thinking behind Odom's work, especially around the idea that there's no free lunch (laughs) in ecological and energetic systems. Uh, Something's got to come from somewhere because I found that a lot of the emphasis in permaculture teaching was a little bit too strongly on the human creativity and brilliance side of the equation, you know, that by thinking differently, we can sort of make every problem into a solution, which Mollison had tended to emphasise that side. And I think it is very, very important aspect of permaculture that it focuses on this human potential uh, creativity, you know, that imagination is the only limitation to the system sort of thinking. But given our past culture of really coming from the Enlightenment and supercharged by fossil fuels, we have a long history of this thinking humans are brilliant and that we can do anything type of approach. And when that combines with ignorance about energy and how energy underpins all natural systems, then it can be very uh, limiting for a designer, if not dangerous, in leading to all sorts of hubris about impossible solutions to environmental dilemmas. So I suppose I also saw Odom's work as providing a scientific basis in systems ecology for permaculture and of course that's very ironic because although Odom was clearly an enormously well-credentialed ecologist that he and his brother Eugene Odom you know two of the great pillars holding up the American lineage of, of ecological science Odom himself was really increasingly in the 
70s and 80s and, and 90s marginalised as sort of fringe to a lot of the directions that ecological science had gone. And in a lot of ways, that, I believe, was a story about reductionist thinking, recapturing the science of ecology and limiting its potency. And, of course, a lot of scientists would explain that, saying, oh, well, those systems ecology ideas, you know, proved to be wrong, uh, and that's just the way science goes, and, you know, they were fashionable and in favour at one stage, but the evidence didn't really support them. Whereas I don't really see it like that. I, I see that the powerful thinking that is in systems ecology had enormous implications for reshaping society and does give us a very insightful picture of the way nature works. That was certainly against the interests of a lot of establishment thinking. Now, I don't see this in some sort of conspiratorial terms, but I think a lot of scientists embedded in reductionist thinking took over ecology and it's a little bit like how in local government local government always used to employ engineers but they never had the money to employ planners and when pl the planning profession became more fashionable and local government needed planners there weren't many planners around and engineers retrained themselves as planners but they were still really engineers well, when ecology became very fashionable academically to study, there weren't many ecologists around and a whole lot of botanists and zoologists who were essentially bit people, you know, passionate about the bits of nature, retrained themselves as ecologists and taught ecology. So they brought that reductionist thinking back into ecological teaching. And I see that that's actually what happened in academia. Permaculture was one of the ideas that was, yes, very powerfully influenced by the holistic thinking of systems ecology. And that's why my book, Principles and Pathways, is actually dedicated to Odom's memory. I started with that question because when I came to permaculture, I was sitting with a copy of the designer's manual, Odom's Environment, Power and Society, and Fukuoka's One Strong Revolution. Of those three, the only one that gave me a feeling that I had the intellectual capital to engage in permaculture was Fukuoka's because it was this, okay, I can sit down and read this and it's as much a life story as a philosophy. I had to read Odom's work, I think, six or seven times before it finally clicked what he was trying to say, and I still only read the designer's manual in pieces. I've never read it in one go or decided to devote myself to it because there's just too much there, and I don't know that I have the brain power to do it. Well, that's why I call the designer's manual an encyclopedia of uh, permaculture design. Um, I remember someone saying, just open it at any page and read that page and there'll be something in there for you um, <laughs> and uh, maybe go away and think about it. But yeah, it's not necessarily a book that you would sit and read from cover to cover. Odom's first book was yeah, extremely difficult. I mean, a much a more accessible book, which was co-written with his wife, Elizabeth Odom, who was actually a high school teacher. And the book was written as a text for high schools and undergraduate university courses, um, Energy Basis for Man and Nature, 1979, I think that was published. That was a much more accessible book. And his last book, which was also co-authored with Elizabeth, The Prosperous Way Down, or A Prosperous Way Down, published just before his death in 2001, is really, again, that sort of more publicly accessible work. But I made efforts in the 90s to actually introduce Odom's uh, sort of energy circuit language into permaculture course teaching, you know, with some degree of success, but it's certainly difficult concepts for most people to digest in some ways. 
thinking about what you said about reductionist thinking in the sciences in these bits and pieces. I'm studying environmental education at the graduate level here in the United States. And much of the conversation that we have is about holistic thinking. And with that, the systems thinking that it's invo- that's involved with that to look at the big picture, to understand how these different pieces are related. And I come from a background in computer science, so I'm very familiar with the work of people such as the late Danella Meadows and systems thinking. But when I engage folks who don't come from that background, these kinds of ideas are really hard after generations of, well, we're going to break it down into a smaller piece and a smaller piece and a smaller piece. We're now at that ground view that to pull it back up to 30,000 feet, when I'm talking with some folks, that seems almost completely foreign to begin to want to think about the world in that way with how easy these little pieces are to pull. Yes, well, that's I've found over the years that talking to people from a background in uh, computer science, cybernetics, uh, organizational theory, and a whole lot of other areas that have been strongly influenced by uh, systems thinking and where, you know, the uh, sort of holistic approaches in some form are taken as necessary, that to explain people who are using biological metaphors all the time in their work because nature provides us with the greatest repertoire of intuitively accessible whole systems that we can imagine because it's at our scale, it's not at the subatomic and it's not at the stellar, and that it's so diverse, nature's so diverse in the the repertoire of systems, that these people are shocked to realise that the mainstream in biological science doesn't accept self-organisation above the organism and the gene level. That concepts like the Gaia hypothesis that, you know, the Earth functions as a living organism are just seen as fairy tales. And this is starting to turn back towards the holistic a little bit now, but still the mainstream within the biological sciences doesn't use any or, or recognize any of these um, larger holistic approaches because a, a lot of those lineages of uh, in the biological sciences, it seems, have been cut out and replaced by the gene and the molecular end of things was going to give us all the answers. And, of course, you know, we've seen what's happened with genetic engineering that they've essentially come up with nothing of substance so far, and yet the hubris 20 and 30 years ago was, you know, by now we were going to have nitrogen-fixing wheat and, you know, a whole suite of other things that would have doubled and tripled, you know, agricultural productivity. So the failure of reductionist science in biology is is really breathtaking, and the the virtual absence of research on the you know a whole more holistic approaches, uh, like I was saying about the study of novel ecosystems, which is by far the the most important task for biological scientists and ecologists is to actually study what nature is doing in recombining in response to the disturbances that humans have created these new ecosystems because this has been my passion that these are the models for our more limited efforts to design ecosystems in permaculture it's what nature does and it's not the long-established, ancient, co-evolved systems that may have existed in a place. It's actually the ones that are evolving rapidly in response to changed circumstances, you know, whether it's enhanced CO2 in the air, degradation of soils, or for, for that matter, enhanced nutrition of soils, or many of the endless changes that, seven billion people and you know half the world's fossil fuels have have generated around the planet this enormous factors of change because you know i still believe very strongly that nature's sort of creative we should call it creative responses to those problems are going to be the best signs and the best guide for how we should act 
And a lot of that, you know, that language sounds like, yes, it's um, anthropomorphic projection onto nature, you know, and sort of getting very close to sort of, oh, nature as, uh, you know, God consciousness, spirituality. But it's just how the world works, you know, to see things self-organizing themselves into some sort of structure that reflects Odom's maximum power principle, that things that gather together and capture more energy and store it in biomass and build soil and fertility end up prevailing over things that don't do that and that that's the power of nature. That's how nature is powered and nature needs the diversity of lots of bits but it also needs power. You know, it, it needs to be successful and it finds that path of success through radical disturbances and, and we have to learn to do that even if that path of power is going to be far, far more modest than the fossil fuels that have been powering us in recent generations. So then if I could get your ideas on where you think the current crop of permaculture practitioners should go, how do we address the outreach into the world as activists to spread the message, and where do you see permaculture going? Well, I, I see the dilemma around how permaculture becomes mainstream versus consolidation into something effective at a local scale is one that is is sort of not often articulated because there's always a big question about how do we make it mainstream, whereas my focus has always been on how do we get systems that actually work as a living reality and that can pass themselves from one generation to the next successfully, especially the most simple and fundamental aspect of society at the household level, like how that becomes second-generation permaculture successful transition. Now, that seems to many people to be sort of ridiculously sort of small agenda, but what I've found over the decades is that if you have powerful working models of success and success in its own terms where people are enjoying what they are doing and succeeding – and you have changed social circumstances, changed economic circumstances where permaculture ways of living and doing things become, it's more obvious that those are beneficial and those changed circumstances are basically where you get economic contraction. Once you get economic contraction, then it becomes more logical for people to grow some of their own food, to have home-based livelihoods to be more resilient, to not be in debt. A whole sort of suite of things that at the moment have been pushing against a tide of rising affluence suddenly become normal. Now, the problem is, is that people rush about ineffectively attempting to do those things and don't make a very good go of it or they don't attempt to do them at all because they're not even aware that they're possible. If there are working models in place of people doing that effectively, then the question of how do we get the mainstream to listen becomes a non-issue. The problem becomes, are any of your models transferable? Can they be replicated? Can people learn that fast? It's not an issue of can you persuade them to take notice. Now, I'm saying that from a country where we are now the third richest country in the world in Australia, and this problem for permaculture activism is quite severe, much more so probably than the United States, where, you know, a lot of people can see that the economic and social situation in a lot of places is a lot more shaky. And from our perspective, there seems to be a lot more vibrancy in the interest in in permaculture and even more so in places like Portugal and uh, Spain where the economic conditions are, are worse still. So 
I see that development of working models and talking to the people who are interested and helping them to establish really solid systems that can be replicated at the local scale is absolutely critical. The other argument around this minority approach versus majority approach is that in a political context, there's often a view that until you get the majority of people in a society to sort of um, change or be interested in change, then none of the large structures change. And what you do at the household level doesn't make sort of much difference, blah, 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 and you've got to change those larger structures. I believe that's wrong in a number of ways. Firstly, the established system, if it's really committed to a, a particular course of action and it's committed to nothing more than uh, perpetual economic growth, it doesn't matter how many people think that's a bad idea. And we've seen that in willingness to go to war or whatever. You need a lot more than a majority of people wanting to change the direction for the system to actually change direction. On the other hand, if you have 10 or 20% of the population who increasingly seriously disconnect themselves from participation in the destructive economy and seriously build a parallel economy, then that does two things. Well, it does several, actually. Firstly, it builds the resilience of the people who are doing that. But secondly, it actually acts as a break on growth itself. It's a consumer strike on a significant scale. And if those people are doing well, when the conditions change, then the majority may look at them and say, oh, well, we could be copying them. And what that does also is give greater political leverage because there is a desperate need for everyone to continue to be a consumer. If people are bailing out with downsizing and, you know, a shift into a, a permaculture ways of living of rejuvenation of the household economy, this is actually highly subversive to the monetary economy. And it actually does give much more political leverage than trying to do what, you know, the climate activism community is mostly trying to do is to get a larger group of people to shout more loudly to get those in power to pull the levers of power and implement certain policies. I don't believe that that strategy of shouting louder is working at all. And, of course, that's one of the things that's attracted people to permaculture in the first place because it's about creating the world we do want rather than trying to stop the world we don't want. So I think the getting one one's own house in order, building the household and community economies as a parallel system, and working where there is the interest and opportunity and building on what one's own passion and expertise is. So maintaining the holistic big picture of permaculture, but recognising that in society you will only get acknowledged as an expert, if you like, or a leader or an innovator in one particular sort of area of permaculture. It might be to do with whether it's mushroom cultivation or, you know, uh, retrofitting old houses to make them energy efficient, or it may be quite a, a narrow field where you are sort of acknowledged as having some expertise. I think it was best put to me by Yasha Rowe from the German Permaculture Academy when he said, rather than permaculturists being jacks of all trades and masters of none, we should aim to be jacks of all trades and master of one. And I think that's that's really important. We do need to be amateurs doing a bit of everything, but we also need to recognise that in our own lifetimes as an individual, we can only become 
really highly competent in one area, especially if that is an area of innovation and experimentation in itself. And that was David Holmgren, the co-originator of Permaculture. Find out more about him and his work at holmgren.com.au or by the link in the show notes. What do you think about what David shared in this conversation? Are you working on your own successful models of permaculture? What are they? Because I'd really like to know and see pictures if you're on a farm or if you're working in a community project so that other people know not just about these voices that are featured on the podcast, but also about the people who are doing this work. We can't make a difference in isolation, especially as the political climate right now, especially in a place like America, sees more and more pulling away from these international agreements and other ideas that will make a difference for ourselves and future generations. With that idea of your functional models and projects, what are the areas of permaculture that you see yourself working in as an amateur, being a jack-of-all-trades in, the places that you're interested in, as well as what is it that you're working on mastering? I ask that because there's a piece of the conversation that didn't make it into the interview that I don't have recorded anymore because it was a private conversation that David and I had after the interview, where he talked further about this idea of being a jack-of-all-trades, that we should have a couple of different areas that we're good at, and that permaculture, just as I recall the conversation, was about having people practicing a series of permacultures, that we're applying permaculture where it is that we are, where we live, and to what it is that we're doing. So if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a janitor, a teacher, a designer, a gardener, a stay-at-home parent, whatever it is that you're doing that you feel called to, that you're living into permaculture with, let me know so that other folks can hear about your story and what it is that you're doing. As always, you can get in touch with me by email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, by phone, 717-827-6266, or if you'd like to, drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interview is a conversation that my friend David Bilbrey recorded with Fred Kirschman to continue their conversation from the Prairie Festival in 2016. Take care, and until I talk to you again, spend each day creating the world that you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.